Hi, I'm Walter Lane, and you've tuned in to a sermon podcast from the Netherwood Park Church of Christ in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Thanks for listening. wintry morning. Uh, This morning we're going to continue talking about and exploring our theme for this year. Our theme is on a mission. And if you were here last week, you'll remember that we asked a question about mission. And that question was, whose mission? We were asking just whose mission is it anyway when we talk about mission? And to answer that question, we explored the calling of Abraham. And through Abraham's story, we saw that it is always God who owns the mission. We also learned last week that like Abraham, our role is to faithfully and to obediently embrace God and embrace his mission. Put it another way, our mission is to embrace our role in his mission. It's his mission. And this morning, we're going to transition to yet another mission question. And that question is, why? Why would you do that? Why would you do what Abraham did? Why would you make God's mission your mission? And related to that, we'll ask, why should you order your entire life according to God's will? As you can tell, those are pretty big questions. Those are important questions. In fact, they're so big and so important that we're going to spend three weeks answering those questions. So here's what's going to happen over the next three weeks. I'm going to propose to you that you should make God's mission your mission and that you should order your life according to his will because of three different realities. Three different truths that are revealed by God through his word. And I'm going to start this week by arguing that you should make God's mission your mission. And that you should order your life according to his will because of the reality of the great I am. Because of the fact that God is. Next week we'll explore the reality that God's story is the story. And then finally, on the 27th, we'll examine the reality of God's people. So three realities. The reality of I am. The reality that his story is the story. And the reality of his people. We're going to find that those are powerful realities. 
But each week we're also going to see that those realities are only powerful for us if we also embrace those realities as our realities. They're only powerful if we embrace the God as our God. And if we embrace his story as our story. And if we embrace his people as our people. So let's look at reality number one. The reality of God as the great I am. And to talk about the reality of God, we're going to take a really fast-paced look at Moses and the Exodus. So you might want to put on your seatbelts. We're going to be moving fairly fast here. So get ready, and I should apologize to our interpreters especially at the pace we're going to move as we take a quick look at Moses and the Exodus. The story of the Exodus is an extension of the Abraham story that we talked about last week. Abraham's heirs, his promised descendants, all 70 of them, ended up in Egypt. And when they first went to Egypt, they were the special guests of the Egyptian king, the Pharaoh. And they came to Egypt because there was a great famine in the land. And they were there because Abraham's great-grandson, Joseph, who had been sold into slavery by his brothers, had been lifted up by God. And he had been put in a position of power and authority in Egypt. And he was there to provide food for Egypt, but more importantly, he was there to provide food and safety for Abraham's descendants, for his family. And as we read, we see as the book of Genesis ends, Abraham's descendants are still in Egypt. And then as we turn the page and Exodus opens up, we find that the situation of Abraham's descendants in Egypt has taken a dramatic turn. And it's a dramatic turn for the worse. And as you're reading those words, you have to wonder if maybe God has forgotten about Abraham. If maybe God has forgotten about those promises that he made to Abraham. Just listen to what has happened in Egypt to Abraham's family. Exodus chapter 1, I'll start reading in verse 6. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died... But the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled with them. That actually sounds promising, doesn't it? Exceedingly numerous. They're filling up the land, but but a new king, one who didn't know Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become much too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they'll join against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. Do you see what's happened The descendants of Abraham, the descendants of Isaac and Jacob, the heirs of God's promises have gone from being this small and honored guest in Egypt to now being this feared multitude, a feared multitude of mistreated slaves. In fact, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, is so concerned about just the sheer number of Israelites that he orders that all newborn Israelite boys be thrown into the river thrown into the Nile to drown. But one boy, 
boy who will be named Moses escapes that fate. He's adopted into the king's household by the king's daughter, and he grows up in a life of Egyptian privilege. But then one day, he comes to the aid of an Israelite slave who is being beaten. And Moses kills the Egyptian slave master. He hides his body in the sand, but he soon finds out that his crime is no secret. So he goes on the run. He ends up in the land of Midian. He gets married. He settles into the life of a sheep herder. And for 40 years, he minds his own business as a sheep herder. But all along, God has a different role planned for Moses. See, God intends to work through Moses to accomplish his mission for Abraham's descendants, nation, name, land, and blessings. So one day Moses is out tending to the sheep. God grabs Moses' attention through a burning bush and he changes the course of Moses' life and the course of history forever. Just listen to God's call as he calls Moses to embrace his mission. Exodus chapter 3 verse 7. The Lord said to Moses, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So go. Go now. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now, God's mission and God's promises are about to take a big step forward. And God intends to work through Moses to rescue Abraham's family, to rescue the Israelites. But we find out that Moses is a more reluctant missionary than was Father Abraham. Moses isn't quite as willing to go when he is sent. I want you to listen to part of Moses' conversation with God as it continues in Exodus chapter 3, now in verse 11. When God said, go, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be the sign that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, Well, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is, who you, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. I am has sent me to you. Well, what's Moses' concern? What issue is it that makes him hesitate? Why is he so reluctant? Why does he doubt God's mission and his part in that mission? Well, part of Moses' concern is certainly that he is inadequate to the mission. He understands his own inadequacies, and that's fair, because he is inadequate. But Moses has a bigger concern. 
His bigger concern is that he's been sent on a mission by a God that no one knows. You see, over the years, not only has Joseph been forgotten by the Egyptians, Joseph's God has been forgotten by the Israelites. Notice he's referred to as the God of their fathers. God has been forgotten, and it's going to be up to Moses to introduce him to the Israelites. That's why he asked. Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And we might be tempted to like quickly skip over God's answer to Moses' question, but that would be a serious and enormous mistake. Because in God's answer, God begins the education of Moses, the education of Israel, and the education of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And he also educates us. In his answer and in his name, God begins to educate all of them and all of us as to who he really is, to the reality of who he is. God says to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. That's his name. I am who I am. Well, what's in a name? So that name. With that name, what is God saying? What is God teaching? What is God claiming about himself? What reality does he want them to understand? Well, in those five short words, I am who I am, God is asserting at least four profound and powerful truths about himself. First, he asserts that he exists, that he is real, that he is alive, that he is active, that he is at work. That he's at work in the physical and the spiritual words, I am. Secondly, he declares that he not only exists, but that he is self-existent. He declares that he wasn't created by something else. He wasn't created by someone else. He asserts that he exists independently of all other things or any other causes, I am. Thirdly, God affirms that he is unchangeable. That he is the same now as he has always been and the same he always will be. I am who I am. And finally, God declares that he is inexhaustible. That he has no limits. That he can't be used up. That he has no boundaries. I am who I am. Am. So God says, when they ask who I am, tell them, I am sent you. Existent, self existent, unchangeable, and inexhaustible, I am. That's how you introduce me. I am who I am. You see, my mission, for my mission to take place, it doesn't really matter who you are. And it doesn't really matter who they are. What matters is that I am. And so after some persuading, that's what Moses does. 
He goes and he introduces God. But we know how it goes when someone we don't know is introduced to us with great fanfare, don't we? We know the kinds of questions that come up when great claims are made about someone we don't know, don't we? We know the kind of questions that come up, especially when someone we don't know is making those claims about themselves. I don't know about you, but my first response in those kind of situations is always, oh yeah? Well, that's who you say you are, but prove it. I'll believe it when I see it. And that's how everyone in Egypt responds. And thus begins the education about I am, an education for Moses and Israel, an education for Pharaoh and Egypt. God's going to prove it. Everyone in Egypt is going to see it. They're going to see I am at work, so they will believe he is who he says he is, that he is I am. We obviously don't have time to go through in any kind of detail the ten different miracles that we usually refer to as the plagues. But I do want to quickly show you how God worked through those plagues to educate the Egyptians and educate the Israelites about the realities of I am. So listen to the I am at work. We'll start out in Exodus chapter 7 verse 16. God sends Moses to confront Pharaoh. They're on the banks of the Nile and he tells him, when you meet with Pharaoh, I want you to say this to him. Say to him, the Lord, I am, has sent me to you to say, let my people go so that they may worship me in the desert. But until now, you have not listened. And this is what the Lord says. By this, you will know that I am the Lord. See, with a staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water of the Nile. You'll be changed into blood. Well, what's going on here? What's the problem? Well, Pharaoh doesn't believe God's claim that he exists. So how does God intend to back up his claim that he exists? Well, with a powerful act that Pharaoh and everyone in Egypt can see, he's going to turn water into blood. And when he does that, when what God claims will happen actually does happen, the water is turned into blood, Pharaoh and the Egyptians are forced to at least acknowledge that this God of Moses is a God. If not the God, seeing is believing. But that isn't education enough, because God doesn't claim to be a God, but the God. So the education continues, and God eventually sends frogs. Frogs are everywhere, on everything, in everything, on everybody. So Pharaoh goes to Moses and asks Moses to take the frogs away at a specific time. Take them away tomorrow. And Moses replies this way. He says, it will be as you say. The frogs will disappear tomorrow so that you may know there is no one like the Lord our God. And of course, the frogs disappear exactly on time. And when that happens, everyone has to acknowledge that the God of Moses is a different kind of God. That this God is unique. 
But that isn't education enough. Because God doesn't claim to be just a different God or even a better God. He claims to be the God. So the education continues. This time it's with swarming flies. But God doesn't send flies everywhere. He just sends them on the Egyptians. And here's why he does that. Exodus chapter 8 verse 22 God says, on that day, on that day that I send the flies, I will deal differently with my people and where they live. No swarms of flies will be there so that you will know that I, the Lord, am in this land. What's God teaching here? Well, he's teaching that he isn't just the God of Israel. He's also God in Egypt. He's teaching that his power extends to Pharaoh and over Pharaoh and whatever gods Pharaoh may choose to worship. So after the flies, after everyone sees what God does, everyone has to acknowledge that God's power exists beyond the Israelites. But that isn't education enough. Because God doesn't just claim to be a God with broad powers. He claims to be The God, I am. So the education continues, this time with a hailstorm to end all hailstorms. And obviously, obviously Pharaoh and the Egyptians need more education because this time they're fully warned. Bring all your people and animals in under shelter. They're going to die in tomorrow's hailstorm. And die they do. And what lesson is God teaching here? Exodus chapter 9, verse 14. God says, With the hail I will send the full force of my plagues against you and against your officials and your people, so you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. So the destruction comes with the hail. And then everyone has to acknowledge that God is the greatest God. There's no one like him. He has no peers. But that isn't education enough. Because God doesn't just claim to be the greatest of the gods. No, he claims to be the only God. I am. And then here, God pauses. I guess we would call it for some special education. And this special education is just for Pharaoh. And Pharaoh needs some special I am education because Pharaoh was used to being told that you are. Imagine Pharaoh's life. It probably went something like this as he was dealing with other people. As in, who's the greatest? Well, Pharaoh, you are. Who's the most powerful? Pharaoh, you are. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Pharaoh, you are. So God helps Pharaoh understand who he is really is. Exodus chapter 9 verse 16, God speaks to Pharaoh and says, I have raised you up for this very purpose, that I might show you my power and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You hear what God's saying? Who's under my power? Oh, Pharaoh, you are. Who's being used to show others my power? Pharaoh, you are. Who is powerless in opposition to my power? Pharaoh, you are. In fact, I am the reason you are. But even that's not education enough because Pharaoh continues to resist 
God's power. So God continues to educate. He sends a final plague. It's a plague of death on the firstborn sons in Egypt. No Egyptian household, including Pharaoh's, is spared. But the Israelite households are passed over and they don't suffer the Egyptians' fate. And what is God teaching here? Well, in Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, God says, On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of, G- of Egypt. I am the Lord. And when that happens, finally everyone has to agree that God sits above and God sits over and God sits in judgment of all other supposed gods. The gods have been lifted up by men, who have been lifted up by nations. In this final act, God shows that he's the one who does the lifting up. And he's the one who does the tearing down. He is, I am. So as you know, Pharaoh finally lets the Israelites go. And you would think at this point that everyone would have a PhD in the I am. But there's one final piece of education, one final piece of education that's needed. It's needed by Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and it's certainly needed by Moses and the Israelites. It's education about God and about his people. So when Pharaoh has one final change of heart, he pursues the Israelites all the way to the banks of the Red Sea. And revenge seems certain. It looks like Pharaoh is about to triumph over God and over his people. And God has Moses stretch out his hand and the water of the sea is divided. The Israelites walk safely through walls of water on dry ground to dry ground. And the desperately pursuing Egyptian army is then swallowed up in the water and drowned. And God shows everyone that he has the power to protect his people. And he does it by defeating his enemies and their enemies without his people even lifting a finger. No, this is not a God. This is the God. This is I am. And as the Israelites walk away from the Red Sea, they should now be ready to answer their, tw- their test questions, the test questions that they're about to be asked. Because they're going to be asked to make God's mission their mission. So Israel, why make God's mission your mission? And the answer is because of the reality that he is, I am. And Israel, why order your entire lives according to his will? And the answer is because of the reality that God is, I am. So what about us? Does the Exodus story have any relevance to us today? Well, of course it does. See, not only does that story reveal the reality of God as the God we have to understand that the Exodus story is our story. 
The Exodus story is our story because we too were enslaved. And God acted powerfully to set us free from sin and make us his people. The Exodus story is our story. And not only is the Exodus story our story, it's a story of God at work. And it's a story of God who is present. See, in our Exodus story, Jesus comes to the earth and boldly declares the reality that before Abraham was born, he says, I am. The I am is on earth in the flesh. In Jesus, I am is physically present to rescue his people. But we know that once more, in our story, like Pharaoh, the people have their questions. The people have their challenges. The people demand proof. We have our questions. We have our challenges. We demand proof. And God once again gives his proof. Once again, God gives his education. For what do the people see? Well, when they see Jesus, they see miracles, they see wonders, they see signs. What do people see when they see Jesus? Well, they see Jesus crucified, they see Jesus buried, but they see him raised from the dead. When people see Jesus, what do they see? Well, they see that the one who was once dead will never die again. He's now at the right hand of God. When people see Jesus, what do they see? They see that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. He is, I am. When people see Jesus, they see that God is still rescuing his people. He's still rescuing his people through water under no power of their own. What do people see when they see Jesus? They see the reality of I am. So Netherwood Park, I have just two questions for you. Why make his mission your mission? And why should you order your life according to his will? Well, I'm here to tell you it's because seeing is believing. It's because of reality. The reality is he is not a God. He is the God. And if you claim the God as your God, his mission must be your mission. If the God is truly your God, how could you order your life in any other way than according to his will? The God is our God. Let's pray together. Father, you have worked powerfully to rescue, to save. And Father, you continue to work powerfully to rescue and to save. And Father, we come into your presence as the redeemed, as the saved. So Father, we thank you for looking down on us in your love and in your mercy. Father, we thank you for being able to call ourselves your children and the children of Abraham. And Father, as we acknowledge you as our God, help us to acknowledge you as the God.
And Father, help us to make you truly our God and your mission, our mission, and to order our entire lives according to your will. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be obedient. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, it's the second week of 2019, so it's time for our second missional challenge. This is an eye-opening challenge. I challenge you to, this week, make an inventory of the miracles, the wonders, the signs, all the things that you see and all the things that you know that demonstrate that our God is the God. And then take that inventory and pray for God's help in ordering your entire life according to his will. Please take that challenge. Let's end by standing and singing and worshiping our awesome God. Say, Lord, like a shepherd.